Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. I'm Pete Wright, and today we continue the budding romance between Thor and Agent Coulson. <laughs> I thought it was between Captain America and Agent Coulson. Wait Agent a Coulson minute. is quite promiscuous <laughs> or was it Pepper? with his fandoms. <laughs> All right, that's right. Today we're talking about Minute 62, which begins with Steve snooping and ends with Coulson and Thor talking about Eric. Back on the show from all the way back at the beginning with uh, Minute 1, Travis Bow from the Real Comic Heroes podcast. Hello, Travis. Hello. Uh, we are looking forward to chatting with you um, for the next four minutes. We've got you for 62 through 65. Uh, this should be fun. What was it that drew you to this uh, part of the film that you wanted to discuss? It's the it's it's tomorrow's minute, the little walk and talk between Coulson and Thor. So the romance then. That's I mean, yeah, unit, yeah. You're, you're a real. Yeah, absolutely. Could have been written by Shonda Rhimes this minute. <laughs> It's interesting because I hadn't really been thinking about it that way. But as soon as you said that, Pete, I'm like, that is interesting. Coulson, like, he's got a lot of, like, ins right now with some of these heroes. Like, he's got Thor from the last one, and this really plays out in these next couple of minutes. There was the whole thing with him and Captain America and all the awkward conversations that they had about watching him while he slept and you know, all that good stuff, even my trading cards. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, now he's Phil with Pepper. And then because of that, Tony is now trying to get in on it, on the good Phil juju, because, you know, he's like, hey, wait a minute, what's going on with Pepper? I want the Phil relationship, too. Hey, why don't I fly you up to Portland? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Like, they're really setting Phil up to be, like, best friends to everybody here. Everybody. I don't. Yeah. Does uh, Banner doesn't get any one on one time with him, does he? He's the one, I guess, who doesn't. Uh, well, yeah. not just the one, but I mean, you know, Natasha uh, obviously is uh, well, and obviously Clint isn't going to be getting any one-on-one -on -one time with him. But, but still, yeah, of the ones who are kind of like the new ones to this particular group, uh, yeah, Bruce doesn't get any time. Mm. But look, you guys, here's the thing: Coulson is a guy who goes to cons, right? Like he's <laughs> a legit fan, and now. You're putting him in a situation in which he is standing with the actual superheroes. <laughs> Tell me you wouldn't act the same way. Oh, yeah. I mean, Andy, I mean, I know you're made of stone, so <laughs> you probably would be fine. That's right. They're, they're... But me and Travis, no, we'd be melting. <laughs> Fangirl no, but... Fangirling the entire <laughs> It's just, it's so, um, it is interesting. And I suppose it's clever on the part of the writers to craft it that way, to really sure. give us this character as not, not just an audience surrogate, kind of, you know, not a superhero who's kind of helping the heroes out, but really is becoming closer with so many of them over the course of this film, so that when a particular thing happens at a certain point in the film, it hits us that much more. And so it's, uh, it's just, it's sharp writing. And, and, it's also just nice here getting kind of the return of these two characters who didn't really have much of a relationship in Thor, but certainly uh, had scenes together. And, uh, you know, at the end of the film, there's definitely that sense that uh, they've grown some respect for each other over the course of that story. So uh, and now we're getting a follow up on that. Something uh, you said about. You know, Coulson being, of course, he is the everyman. He is our window into this this movie. 
it made me think of Hellboy and the uh, his name's Myers, I think, and he's the like rookie agent who's being brought into the team, and you're you're meant to see the meet the team, meet these you know freaks sort of sort of thing through his eyes for the first time, and then yeah, it's obviously doesn't play out the same way, but it just kind of reminded me of that same kind of archetype, I guess. Yeah, it's it's very much an archetype, and it's certainly something that uh, you know. In this type of film, I think it certainly helps finding a character who is just a normal everyday Joe who can be there with all of these people. And it just makes us drawn to them that much more when we can see that there is that connection they have. Well, and he's just so, like, likable, mm-hmm. right? There, he's so likable. He is the perfect, Clark Gregg is the perfect everyman for this role. Like, he just pulls it off. And when he turns, as much as we've, as much as we've talked about, you know, the way he performs falling upstairs and uh, the way he performs shaking in an, in an earthquake situation, the, the fact is when he says she'll be safe, got to tell you, I believe you. Yeah. I believe you, Agent Golson. I believe that <laughs> she's going to be fine. No. Yeah. I mean, he's he's great at those little beats. Um, so it was nice to see. It's I just actually... Uh, rewatched the usual suspects from 95 and, and I caught him in there. He was a, a, a doctor in there and I completely did not remember that he was in that film, but it was just exciting to see, uh, young Clark Gregg, you know, working in these bit parts in projects, um, all the way back then. So, and, uh, yeah, he certainly has had a, a burst into the public eye because of all this. So that's fantastic. Yeah. So. Um, before all of this, though, we're coming in on uh, on this minute as Steve is creeping around in the storage room. Now, in the last minute, as he kind of breaks the door open, there are some people kind of walking away on the top. Um, you know, there's a, I don't know, the open hallway, I guess it would be above him. It looks like they're kind of leaving. I'm assuming everyone's gone and I'm assuming they don't hear the him breaking the door because he's able to kind of creep around. But is this what kind of space? I mean, we talked about this in the, a little bit in the last minute, but it's such a strange space to have here on the helicarrier. We've got this big storage room full of tons of stuff. It looks like the Raiders thing, as we discussed, but it also seems like it's kind of like another open area where there are people working and stuff. So I, I don't know. It's just, it's a strange little area. I'm not exactly sure. It, it, does it feel like this is just designed here to be very plot specific or does it feel like there's logic for having a huge storage room like this on the helicarrier? That's where I start my notes, too. I feel like we're <laughs> suddenly in a in a factory or a warehouse in Cleveland, which is probably where we're at. You know, it's probably where they're filming this. Yeah. And yeah, because of this, I lose all sense of scale with the, the helicarrier. It, it, you know, yeah, we're suddenly in a warehouse, and then I forget, is he off the helicarrier? Is he investigating, you know, in some warehouse district in, you know, <laughs> in Burbank? I mean, I, I don't understand where we're at. And then, not to jump ahead, but then following, leaving this sequence and then going through a tunnel with a truck, I'm like, how big is this helicarrier? It's got it's got a road. It's got a tunnel. And then I'm like, oh yeah. Now we're changing, you know, scenery entirely. And this is the are those guy. villagers right there. I yeah, think there but, are villagers. But suddenly, because of this space, I, I just forget, you know, where we're at. And 
like yeah it, it I, I don't care for this as a as a location within the helicarrier it is really strange and it it's strange the way he he finds it the way he sniffs out the cover up the way all of the things i think is just really weird but i think andy your point stands this is a plot driven location this is so we see cap discovering something without a whole lot of attention to how it was blocked and built yeah i, I guess that's where we kind of have to leave it um uh, it's because it just feels like they needed a place to store a bunch of old hydro weapons so sure why not put it in a room in the hell carrier because steve is going to need to find it and and that's pretty much all, all we have with this. It's been a week or two since I've watched the the full movie, and I don't. I know he shows back up with with the weapon. Yeah, confronts yeah. Uh, Tony, and, and and then the whole group assembles, and he shows up with with some stuff that he finds. Do they show him in this location finding anything, or is is this does it cut here and then we don't see him again until he shows up with what he's found? No, he'll see. He, he will open. Okay. Okay. A, um, I couldn't remember if I was piecing that together. Okay. Right. Yeah. We'll see him open up one of the things and he finds the Hydra gun. The old gun. And, yeah. and kind of, a, it looks, I mean, it looks almost like an outfit, you know, mm, from one of the right. Hydra soldiers. It's it's in the section when Natasha is talking to Loki and he's has that whole thing about you work for, you know, lies, uh, liars right. and or whatever that whole line thing is, and and while that's happening, we're getting that whole montage of right. of Tony and and Bruce breaking into Shield stuff, and Shield and or you know Hill and Fury get the notification that they're being hacked, and then he's covering recovering all those weapons. So yeah, that's all of this. Yeah. So so yeah, we will see a little bit more of this particular scene here. I guess what we're just getting right here is Steve has had the seed planted, and now he. It, he's not going to be able to let this go. He is going to need to dig deeper. And I guess he's just lucky that the storage facility that they use also happens to be on the helicarrier. Cause <laughs> yeah. yeah, You know, it probably makes sense for it to be in DC or New York or somewhere else, but Hey, no, let's put it on the helicarrier. Cause everything <laughs> else is. <laughs> so, so we get that a little bit, but that, you mentioned the truck in the tunnel. So now we're cutting to the truck in the tunnel. What is interesting about this is that, uh, you know, friend of the show, Jay Shepard, MCU location scout himself. Hmm. This is one location that he has not been able to pinpoint from this movie. And it speaks to the fact of just how generic of a tunnel it is, really. But uh, he has looked and has yet to uh, be able to find exactly where this tunnel was I don't know if it was in Cleveland. I don't know if it was in Albuquerque. My guess is it would be one of those two places. But mm. I mean, it's just truck in the tunnel. But if Jay can't find it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> Legit, it's a CGI truck <laughs> and tunnel. It's all CG. <laughs> it was all CG. It's animated. It's all miniatures. That's the crazy thing. It is. It's all <laughs> miniatures. That's right. <laughs> Based on the signal that we see later when we get the gamma radiation, uh, we're, I guess we're meant to assume that this tunnel is somewhere near New York City, um, because okay. that is obviously where Eric is heading. It's just not filmed there, but, or, I mean, who knows? Maybe it is, because, again. Yeah. So maybe they're going, just, this is a tunnel underneath the Appalachian. This is, they're somewhere in Pennsylvania. Very well possible. Yes. Yeah. Getting close, getting close. Yeah. 
But what we see here is inside the truck, Eric has yet to stop. They have now left Loki's lair. The Tesseract is on the move. We see him working with, I don't know who this extra is, unfortunately. I don't know if he's a S.H.I.E.L.D. scientist. I don't know if he's a bitter rival scientist. But anyway, he is here with Eric. Eric is working on this iridium. And as the scale says, it's 0.38 kilograms of iridium, to be exact. Now, iridium is the second densest naturally occurring metal uh, after osmium with a density of 22.56 grams per centimeter cubed, which would put the weight at about 16.84 centimeters cubed, or the, the, the dense, the size, if you, ta- if you take that 0.38 kilograms, it's about 16.84 centimeters cubed. So I guess, I don't know, I guess that's pretty close. I'm not sure what 16.84 centimeters cubed would look like. But it looks about like a can of soup is about how big this iridium looked. <laughs> yeah, let's leave it at can of soup. That was a lot of math, Andy. Mm-hmm. I'm really impressed. <laughs> so many so many measurements. I did some math of my own, but it was an <laughs> entirely different. Uh, see, see, I'm around second uh, 18. You can kind of see the whole of, of the inside of this uh, truck. And I looked up how tall Stellan Skarsgård is. He's six foot three. And I think... The width of the inside of this trailer is two Stellan Skarsgards, which is is a unit of measurement. <laughs> I so what that would put this this truck, you know, the interior of this truck being like a 12, 12 and a half feet. And, you know, standard box truck is uh, like eight feet wide on the inside. So I think there's some trickery here. I would bet. You're right. I would absolutely <laughs> bet that this is one of those, um, you know, it's close. It's close. Yeah. yeah. I just find it so strange that box truck manufacturers don't use a full Stellan Skarsgård measure. Well, it's the whole standard versus. It just feels like using a fractional Stellan Skarsgård. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. Imperial. Yeah. It's imperial versus metric. It's, you don't want to see, you would see a metric Stellan Skarsgård. There's so many decimal places. <laughs> What's the volume of a Stellan Skarsgård? <laughs> See, <laughs> I wonder if ChatGPT can answer that. Yeah. yeah, I'll get back to you on that. What's the volume of Stellan Skarsgård? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Stellan would want us talking about his w- volume. <laughs> Are you getting? This might be the only thing that ever gets him to pick up the phone. Here, here's the problem I have with Stellan Skarsgård <laughs> in, in this movie. It, it's not a problem I have with Stellan Skarsgård, as you know, is without flaw he is a perfect uh, specimen and performer and also is six foot three inches tall now my problem is do we have any like rational setup for Stellan Skarsgård to be deteriorating before us over time he looks terrible in this sequence what has happened to him it makes total sense he's so focused on the task at hand you know, he's he's just ignored all social norms. You know, he probably hasn't showered in a week now. He's, yeah, just hasn't shaven. I, I love this disheveled look to him. I, I, it does make me question why Barton isn't as equally as, you know, yes, grizzled looking later. But is it because he's maybe because he's working with the, yeah, the, uh, the test, you know, for an object? Mm-hmm. He's studying. Well, and I think to, you know, a point that you made a while back, Pete, about Stellan Skarska, or I should say about Eric Selvig, is that science? I'm going to do it. I was yeah, we know. <laughs> I'm going to do that science. He, when he has science Towers like this damned. in front of him, 
showers, shaving, none of that matters. Mm -hmm. It reminds me so much of something I didn't understand about uh, Batman 89 for the longest time. Uh, like halfway through the movie, suddenly the TV reporter looks gross. You know, he's got oh. zits on his face. You can tell he just he just looks nasty. It's like, oh, I finally under understand. I'm old enough now to understand the plot of the movie that there's a war on cosmetics and right. he can't use, you know, anything to clean himself. So yeah. it, that's I kind of get that same, you know, like if you if you don't notice it, it's not going to break the movie. But if you notice it, it's it's a nice little touch that he's just he doesn't care about himself at this point. He just wants to do science. Well, and I, and I think the interesting thing about uh, Eric is, I mean, as he said, you know, the Tesseract working with the Tesseract has like opened his mind and he's like seen so much more and learned so much like that conversation that he's having with Loki earlier when. Uh, when he and Clint are talking about stealing the iridium, we're really starting to get that sense of this is Eric and he's starting to kind of lose his mind a little bit to working with the Tesseract. Like it really does put him on this path where I kind of feel like even if he wasn't under Loki's control, he probably would be like, you know what, I, but I still have to finish this. I'm I'm so excited about the prospects of this. It's a clever thing they do with him in in. Thor, the Dark Thor, you know that where you you we we meet back up with him and he's gone a little crazy, right? So. Right, running around naked at Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. Now, now the question though about him and really Clint is neither of them, or I should say, both of them are still under uh, uh, under Loki's power. Loki no longer has the scepter. This is. The first time we have seen either Eric or Loki right. since the attack on Stuttgart when uh, Loki was captured, uh, we honestly, and we haven't seen the uh, the scepter yet. We'll see it shortly in the, or no, we just saw it in the lab, but that was the first time that we've really seen that the scepter made it here. Loki doesn't have it, though, and now we're actually getting confirmation that they are still, in fact, under Loki's power. He doesn't need to be wielding the scepter to have kind of like created this. I don't know. It's it's like an interesting like yeah. connection, I guess, between them. Is that is that how we are reading this? I guess the scepter still knows who its master is, that sort of thing. Or it's still it's it's not going to be controlled by anyone, I guess, except for him right now. Yeah, I guess. I I feel like. We have to go back and forth on this point because later, you know, we have the scepter in Bruce's hands, you know, mm -hmm. exuding some sort of authority. And I'm just not sure. Like, but I still think that is Loki's influence because when when Bruce is holding that scepter, he starts to get a little feisty, agitated. Yeah. It, it, it seems like he's now under Loki's influence a little bit. And well, everybody in the room is getting agitated. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, I love that scene. It's interesting how, you know, the the scepter or the mind stone inside uh, is definitely affecting people mm -hmm. in that sequence. I wish they pushed that further. I always thought they didn't go far enough with that. They yeah, they don't. And we'll certainly talk about that. It's just I, I, I it's so interesting to me that there is this power that remains just because Loki was wielding the scepter and he did whatever it does when he touches it to their chest and now they're under his power and now 
they remain under his power. And I just wonder, like, what does it take to then break the thing? And I mean, I guess we'll find out really later. Really hard yeah. hit to the head. I wonder if yeah. the <laughs> scepter, you know, I wonder if, if the scepter is a conduit to channel that Mind Stone energy. And if a little bit of energy goes from the stone transfers through the scepter into Barton, into Selvig and everyone else. And so the energy is still within them. And that's why they're still influenced by the mind stone, essentially. And and Loki is, for the time being, is controlling the mind stone, I guess. So it's still, these people are receivers for this this power that Loki has right now, I guess. Well, you know what? And maybe that makes it, it almost makes the Loki Selvig connection from the end of the last movie when we we come into this movie thinking that they are still connected. But maybe it's a like diminishing sort of uh, return on that connection. Like if he's not doesn't stay connected for a very long time, he gets less and less connected over time. Maybe it just wears off and it hasn't worn off yet. That's why he had to reset it in the opening sequence. I'm fishing here. I'm trying to make oh, hey, that work for you. That's, you know, we can call that a no prize. That would actually be an interesting, like over time, it slowly wears off if he's not around. So yeah. Um, to a point where Eric eventually will be like, why, why was I working on this again? Yeah. <laughs> right. He just wakes up one day and says, I really miss pineapple. <laughs> Suddenly there are a lot of weird things that have to come back into place. Yeah, the the Mind Stone is an interesting one because, I mean, eventually, obviously, it it ends up with Vision, but will we ever see it used this way again? I'm trying to remember, but I don't think we do, do we? No, no. So that's another thing. It's like they're as needed sorts of uh, powers with the the use of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it is what it is. Uh, what's happening is lo- uh, Eric is busy working on this. He now has the iridium. He's putting it inside this thing that he has clearly built to hold it. Again, he's moving very quickly, building these amazingly complicated things. It drops into this thing and turns on. And interesting note, as the iridium passes the Tesseract, the Tesseract has a little extra glow. Yeah. I, I, it's a stably, stabilizing agent. I'm not exactly sure why it makes it glow, but that's what it's doing. And so I guess it's just showing us that all of this stuff kind of fits into the plans. They're all connected. They're all connected. And Eric gives a little smile. So he's happy things are doing what he wants them to be doing. That smile really sells that we don't have to have any dialogue in this trailer to know what's going on because we don't know what's going on really. But that smile, I think, really sells that, okay, things are are moving right along for for these guys. Which is good that it is, since they are already moving to the location. <laughs> it would have been terrible for him. Damn it, this was not right. <laughs> we got to go back. Let's take me back to the compound. Oh, uh, well. Did you guys, I, I, I sense that we're about to transition out of this location and into the next. So you guys didn't notice the third person in the trailer? Um, let's see. If you go I to was... like sec- second 17 as you're, there's a guy sitting like so the end of the trailer that we that we see has those plastic flaps and yes. then beyond that beyond the flaps there is a guy sitting there i guess between oh yes where they're at and the cab of the truck i guess 
or maybe right. this is the end of the truck. I don't know. Like a soldier babysitter. Yeah, I think is it the other? He's been there the whole time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I imagine he is just a soldier. He's just a a guy tasked to make sure these two just stay on on task. I guess it looks like it. It looks like he's got a beret or mm-hmm. something he on. Looks which military. Is... He looks mercenary. Yeah. Yeah. It speaks to that mercenary sort of look that, that yeah. he would have. Yeah. Someone that Barton probably was able to grab. Well, as as he said in the deleted scenes, like a lot of these people that they found were people who had something against S.H.I.E.L.D. It's not like Loki had to go around and turn everybody with the scepter to, to work with him. It's like there were clearly people out there who were excited to join a group that was fighting against S.H.I.E.L.D. And that looks like the sort of person who probably would be happy to do this. So, yes, thank you for pointing him out. Mystery, another mystery extra that we have in this film. (laughs) There are so many, so, so many. Uh, Yes, but we are transitioning. Now we're going uh, to the helicarrier because uh, using Eric as a fantastic transition device, we go from Eric to Jane on the screen. And Coulson is talking about Jane and the fact that they moved her very suddenly to Tromso, Norway, where there is an observatory, handsome fee, private plane, very remote. She'll be safe. It's a, it's, it's a nice way to write an actor out of the story. I suppose for whatever reason, you know, she either wasn't interested, didn't have time. They couldn't afford her. Who knows? But this is the excuse to just write her out of the story. Uh, I would say that it's unfortunate that we, we don't get Natalie Portman, Portman in this movie. I really like Jane Foster, um, especially from, uh, the first Thor, I think she's great in that movie. And yeah, I would like to see her in this, just joining the the science team, maybe trying to counteract what, what Selvig is doing. It, it's funny to say with a movie like Endgame now out that the 10 people in this movie, it's it's too much. You know, we, we can't put another person <laughs> yeah, in right. here, you know. <laughs> but at the time, yeah, this, this movie was already got a lot of characters to, to fit and a lot of pieces to, to move around. Um, so I, I think it's a good enough reason to to make sure she's uh, not part of the story. I guess it's one of those things that, I mean, it feels it does feel written. And certainly they're not at that point, as you said, later where people like, you know, Natalie Portman or, you know, smaller or bigger would come back just to do a, a bit scene, you know, and, and like they aren't at that stage yet. They're certainly building to that. But it just wasn't there yet, which is too bad. My question, though, is do you think they also moved Darcy? <laughs> hmm. Or is it just Jane who gets to be moved? Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, I know Jane is the scientist, but I was wondering if Darcy gets to go, too. I like to think so. <laughs> I, think, I like to think they're inseparable. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So. Tromso, Norway. I found the page for the Auroral Observatory at Tromso, their Facebook page, uh, which actually had a picture of a, a building, and it fits. Uh, the you know, There's plenty of talk about the auroras in Thor from Jane, so it makes sense that they send her here. The history of auroral research in Tromso goes back to 1919, when the first magnetic readings were performed in this building, the Geophysical Institute. In order to mark the centenary, the Arctic University of Norway established this page to communicate facts about the Northern Lights and auroral science past and present. So, yeah, the Arctic University Museum of Norway has this whole Facebook page full of information about this particular observatory that she's going to. Although, I, did, does it sound like 
Colson is saying that it's their observatory. Oh, I didn't get that. Well, because he says we've got an excellent observatory. Is it, is it more like, hey, we know this place where we can send her sort of thing? For the longest time, I completely missed this bit of dialogue in, you know, the countless times I've, I've watched the movie. It wasn't until, you know, really paying attention to what he's actually saying uh, for this minute that I ever caught that he says Tromso in Norway. I just thought it was just I just always missed it. Yeah. You can squint and hear they've got a, a good observatory or we've got. I mean, I, I think it I never heard we've. I think it's easy to look at it either way. I, I yeah. you know, yeah. But it could be that that type of for someone like Jane Foster, they've already probably figured out if we ever have to move her, we're going to send her to this observatory in Norway. Yeah. I like the bit in this conversation, you know, Thor thanks him and everything. And then they're talking about Eric and uh, Thor says Eric's a good man. And Coulson says he talks about you a lot. I really do like to think about all of these people like Pepper and Eric and Phil going out for drinks <laughs> whenever they get a chance. Like, <laughs> totally. I just I feel like that needs to happen. Like something yeah. that would be a great uh, one shot to do is just have these right. three just hanging out talking about stuff that is completely mm-hmm. unrelated to the movie. The support group for the... Yeah, I, I love yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't have anything else for this minute. Do either of you have anything or should we uh, uh, wrap up so we can talk? Uh, come back tomorrow to talk about Minute 63 with more of this conversation? I, I do. Oh, I do. do. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty excited to report this to you guys that uh, it, it was actually... Travis's math that has unlocked <laughs> oh, no. an awful lot for us. <laughs> I have had an extended conversation with ChatGPT, and it, I, I'm, <laughs> it really was recalcitrant at first, but I was able to come up with, in fact, a uh, a useful conversation converting a human body to volume. <laughs> and let me tell you, ChatGPT did not want to have any thing to do with it for the longest time. I'm sorry, but as I mentioned earlier, sarcastically, it doesn't make any sense to talk about the volume of a person. Volume refers to the amount of space that a three-dimensional object occupies. People are three-dimensional objects, but their volume are not measured. It's not measured the same way as a cube or a sphere. If you have any other questions, I'll be happy to help you. Well, I got there, ChatGPT, and the answer is (laughs) one Stellan Skarsgård is six foot three inches, uh, 190.5 uh, centimeters and 66.67 liters. <laughs> so we can we could use a Stellan Skarsgård to refer to an awful lot of stuff. I feel like we might have unlocked the secret of the Tesseract. I think so. Using yeah. Stellan Skarsgård. 66.6 yeah. liters. Yep. This is important stuff, everybody. Yes. Uh, this is great. This is the good stuff, everybody. This is why you're here. <laughs> Oh, well, um, uh, uh, Travis, you have a new show that's out there. Uh, Why don't you tell everybody about that and what else you have out there? Yeah, sure do. Uh, And my new show, it it formed in between my my appearance on minute one of this show. And and now it uh, what? Yeah, I hadn't even come up with back then. Um, Yeah, I'm doing a show called Minute of Thieves, where I will be going through the Kevin Reynolds, Kevin Costner, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, one minute at a time. Fantastic. Andy and Pete have uh, already been guests on it. We've recorded some episodes. They'll be back for 
uh, later episodes. And, and like I say in one of those episodes, I completely stole this format of uh, of theirs of letting guests kind of pick and choose and, and choose minutes that don't, uh, you know, that aren't back to back. So, I, Travis, I mean, come on. Everything we do, we do it for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, oh, nice. I see what you did there. <laughs> I see, yeah, I see what you did there. Oh. <laughs> uh. That was an arrow straight to my heart, Pete. <laughs> well played. Uh, Travis, What's the, uh, where's the site for that? Oh, yeah. Um, just search Minute of Thieves on all your social medias. I don't ha- I'm still in production on the show, so I don't have a website landing page for it yet, but we'll worry about that later. But if you search Minute of Thieves, of course, this episode is going to come out way before I'm, I'm releasing episodes. So. Gotcha. Um, All right. Well, search for that, everybody, and we'll have a link to, uh, you know, Travis's other stuff in our uh, show notes. So check all of that. Uh, Travis, thank you so much. Thrilled to have you back. My pleasure. And we'll be back tomorrow to talk about Minute 63. So, Pete, thanks as always. Oh, Andy, I wish I could be equal to even one Stellan Skarsgård. (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs>